We are in the book of James. Uh, if I was to say, I can give you the secret to every successful person that has ever lived in history, would you want to hear that? The secret to the people that have invented planes and trains and automobiles and Tesla and PayPal and Apple and Google, would you want to hear it? Hearing is the problem. James 1.22, listen to this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure, And undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Did you hear the secret? Doing. (laughs) The difference between a dream and a destiny is doing. And what James does right here is he highlights two kinds of people. And most of us are probably a hybrid, but we want to become more of one of the type of people. All right? So the first kind of person, I just call him a showman. It's all show. It's all image. It's all posting up. It's all look at me. It's all mirror, right? So he says this guy is like a guy that looks in a mirror and forgets what he's like. I love that it's a guy who looks in his mirror and forgets what he's like. It's not a woman, right? Because men and women deal with mirrors differently, don't we? I've used this illustration before, but I have a lot of women in my house. I've got four ladies in my house, my wife and three daughters. And I'm amazed at the mirrors that they use. So ladies, think about your day. You woke up this morning, you hit mirror number one, the bathroom mirror, right? You surveyed eight hours of damage. What happened to me? (laughs) And then out came mirror number two because you need a 360 degree of that damage, right? So then after that, you fix yourself up and then it's mirror number three, which is the full length mirror. Behold the glory. All the way down to the shoe. Then we get in the car, and in the car, guess what? Mirrors four and five. My rearview mirror and the visor mirror, because it needs to be stereo. And then we get here, you get out of the car, and then it's the last mirror, the purse mirror. 
Because you got to make sure, did that one eyebrow go out? Okay, no, I'm good. Men don't deal with mirrors like that, right? Men do not have a purse mirror. If you do have a purse mirror, repent right now. So it's the man that forgets. And this man, James describes some things about him. First, verse 23 says, he looks intently at himself. People that hear and don't do, they often don't lack intensity. They'll tell you all about their plans. They'll tell you all about what they're going to do tomorrow. They'll give you them. They'll have notebooks full of plans. They'll say, hey, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to start this business. I'm going to marry that gal. I'm going to move to this city. Man, they have no problem of intently telling you all of what they're going to do. But the problem is this. Verse 24, they forget. They forget. And so the next time you talk to them or the next time you meet them, what happens? They're not doing those plans anymore. They've got brand new plans that they're very intense about. Well, I'm not going to do that now. I'm doing something new, right? It's always a new plan, a new thing, and there's never been any execution or follow-through. It's hearing, but not doing. And I love that James says they actually forget what they're like. They forget what manner of person they are. The cycle comes and goes so often That five years, ten years later, they're still doing the same thing, but they don't even realize that they've been planning and making all these great declarations and never do anything because they forget what manner of person they are. Right? They they look, they forget, and then verse 26 says, they can't bridle their tongue. It's all talk and no walk. They'll tell you about all their plans, but they never do it. Or my favorite is this, I used to, especially in church. Oh, I used to go to church, or I used to be in Bible study, or I used to go to that group, or I used to serve. It's a lot of used tos. So this guy is intense, forgetful, all walk and no talk. Now that goes for anybody, right? You don't have to be in church, you don't have to be a believer to know that. There's a lot of people that are that way. But James is actually zeroing in on something because if you look at verse 22, he says, be ye doers of the word. This book that we hold. Now we're supposed to be doing this word. But I'll tell you, something amazing happens. You can come here and sit for an hour and 15, an hour and 25 minutes. And then you get up and you walk through those doors And you go out and you meet somebody maybe that's coming to another service. And they're like, hey, how was the message today? Oh, it was great. Oh, what was it about? Oh, great. I don't remember. Because there's like giant erasers over those back doors that just scrub you of everything. Right? Happens to me. That's why I take notes, because the same thing happens to me. When I'm in church, I write things down because... I don't want the eraser to happen to me. But there's also another kind of way people can come to church where it's like you're here because you're trying to impress somebody, a mom, a dad, a spouse, a future spouse. And so you're really just checking a box, but you're not here 
with any intention of allowing God's word to impact you and transform you. So you're not coming saying, I'm the clay, you're the potter, remake me, reform me, I'm broken and I need help. It's, "Ah, I'm just here. And so nothing ever penetrates your heart. Hey, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, when he starts mowing the middle strip, I will. When he moves his RV, I will. When he takes care of that barking dog. Hey, serve somewhere. Nah. Give. Nope. Help. Nah. So there's a way of coming, actually, where you're never going to be moved to ever do something. Right? So what I say is this. We can have full notebooks but empty lives. And maybe it's like this. Let's imagine this scenario. I have two boys, and let's say I need help from them. And we're having company in the evening. I'm going to be gone all day. So I leave a note for my boys, and I write on that note, Elijah, Myron, I love you guys. You're my crew. You're the best. I couldn't imagine better sons than you. I am totally stoked for you guys. Every day you impress me, ah, and I need your help. I'm going to be gone all day. We're having company tonight. So would you guys please mow the lawn today? Thanks, your loving father. And I go off, come home at five o'clock at night, and I'm driving up and I see the lawn's not mowed. So I go inside. I'm like, boys, did you get my note? Oh, yeah, dad, we got your note And it was awesome. We have been studying your note all day. The grammar, the prose, your penmanship, Dad, is so good. In fact, we've been researching mowing. We've looked at how other cultures mow their lawns. We've looked at mowing in the Hebrew and the Greek, and we've memorized it. We've started an online group. And it's an online accountability group about mowing. Dad, look at my notebook. But son, did you mow the lawn? No, but look at my notebook. I think sometimes that can happen to us in the church. Full notebooks, but empty, empty lives. And here's the danger of that. Jesus gives this Sermon, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the constitution of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Revolutionary, different, better, stronger. And at the end of that message, he says this, there are two kinds of people here today. There are those that heard my words, and they're going to do them. That man is like someone that builds his house on the rock. And when storms come, That house stands. But there's another kind of person here, Jesus says today. The guy that heard my word isn't going to do any of it. He's like a man that builds his house on the sand. And when the storm comes, great is the fall of that house. Have you ever known somebody that's in the church and around the church and been through the church and they just seem like, oh, they're doing pretty good? And then a storm hits their life, some difficulty... And then they're just, boom, their whole life blows up. I wonder if they had full notebooks, but an empty life, 
and they weren't doing it. And so James says this, verse 22, if you're that kind of person, you actually deceive yourself. And the word deceive there, it's the Greek word paralogizomai, which literally means parallel logic. It's you're living in your own reality. You're living in your own little world, right? It's a parallel logic. It's like a dream. Do you know that in a dream, your brain deceives you? You imagine you're running or you're building or you're kicking or whatever it is, right? You think it's happening, but is your body actually doing anything? Mm -mm. Because the brain can send this little signal to this gate in your spinal cord that shuts it off. So the messages never get out to your hands and you don't do anything. The only muscle that isn't that way is your eye, which has a direct, the optic nerve goes directly in. So your eyes will flutter. But you imagine you're doing all this stuff. But you're actually deceiving yourself. You're living a dream, quite literally. It's a danger. That's the danger. So how do you ever get out of being deceived? You got to ask somebody else because you're deceiving yourself. You got to have somebody else wake you up. One of the best practices you can ever get into is asking people you really trust questions about yourself. Am I, dis- am I this kind of person? Do I have a lot of talk and no walk? Do I have lots of plans that I never follow through? Have you seen a bad cycle in my life? And then you listen to them. And it can be eye-opening. Happened to me a number of years ago. Uh, I took a trip with some high schoolers down to Haiti right after the earthquake and that stuff that happened there. So we're down there and we're doing some work and having a great time. And we met this girl named Sarah. She's a missionary from Vancouver, British Columbia, down in Haiti. She was awesome. Man, one of the most amazing people I've ever been around. And so we're sitting one day and we're having a lunch with her. And I'm asking her questions like, what's, your, you know, what's going on? And just getting to know her. And she said, whenever I meet somebody, I always imagine them as an animal. I'm like, really? So I started saying, okay. Glenn Litwiller was with us. I said, Glenn, what kind of animal do you see Glenn Litwiller as? She said, I saw him as an ostrich. I thought, that's brilliant. That's what he is. And then my wife was sitting next to me, Charity. And I said, my wife, how, what animal do you see her as? And he said, she's a, or she said, she's a dove. And I'm like, yes, you nailed it. So then I said, what animal do you see me as? And she kind of gave me this look like, I don't know if you want to know. I'm like, I'm tough, tell me. She goes, I see you as a velociraptor. Rawr! I'm like, huh. No, I don't like that one. And I really started evaluating how, what kind of a presence do I put off? Because that's not what I want. Sometimes it takes someone outside of you, because you're deceiving yourself, to speak in. Ask somebody, am I here and not a doer? And then listen to them. Listen and take notes, okay? So that's the first guy. He's a showman. It's all outward. It's all image. There's no go to him. The second one, I call it a psalmsman. And it's what James says at the end of verse 25. He says, 
this certain kind of person, he will be blessed in his doing. Anyone reading this book 2,000 years ago would immediately go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits with the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He'll bear fruit in his season. His leaf will not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. James is condensing Psalm 1 down to just, hey, this kind of guy, this psalmsman, he's going to be blessed in his doing. He's not going to hear things and not do them. He's going to be the kind of guy that says, today, spirit, as I go through my day, remind me of your word. Remind me of who I am. Help me not to forget what manner of man, what manner of woman I am. Remind me of my identity. Help me to walk that out today. Help me to keep my word even if it hurts me. It's what Psalm 15 verse 4 says we're supposed to do. That we keep our word even if it hurts us. I gave you my word and I'm going to keep it no matter what. I'm not going to skip to something better or something different. I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to do it. Well, what do they do? Verse 27. Pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. They stay away from sin and they serve and help orphans and widows. And the Bible said, that person is blessed. I found the blessing in verse 27. So, way back in 1998, I'm going down to this orphanage in Carmen Serdan, Mexico, where they take care of orphans, severely handicapped orphans, really, really bad ones. By the way, today, you guys financially support and take care of those orphans. So I go down there, and I knew one of the orphans because Bob Simonson, the guy that started that orphanage down in Carmen Serdan, he had this kid named Ricky, really bad shape, couldn't walk, can't talk, can't eat, can't do anything by himself. His legs don't go out, they, down they go out this way, very handicapped. Because he was so worried about this child not getting the help that he needed, he would smuggle Ricky from Mexico up here to Grants Pass. And my family was friends with his family, so I knew Ricky. And Ricky had grown up, and he was a 20-year-old man now. And I'm like, Jesus, whoever you have me to take care of down in Mexico, may it not be Ricky? It's so hard. I saw what was necessary to take care of Ricky. I knew that is hard, hard stuff. So we get down there. We're in the cocina. There's like 24 of us. And they started to name off, here's your shift, and here's the person. Matt Heverly, dinner, night shift, Ricky. I'm like, oh, really? I'm down here serving you and this is what I get, right? It's a little bit of that in me. And my job was after dinner, 
I'd feed him dinner, brush his teeth, change his clothes, give him a bath, change his diaper, put him to bed. That was, took about two and a half hours. That was my nightly ritual with him. And I, at first, I was grumbling and complaining. Two weeks in, I walk into the cocina. Ricky's there. And it must have been a good day for me. I wasn't being a velociraptor that day, I guess. And I came in and I was like, and I sang to Ricky just in the cocina. And I sang, you know that song, Billy, don't you lose my number? You're not anywhere that I can't find you. And I changed it to Ricky. And he looked at me. And up to this point, I didn't even know if he could smile. And he smiled and started laughing. It transformed me. Then that little two and a half hour shift became this just incredible blessing to my life. I connected with him. There is such a blessing when you get out of your little tininess and say, all right, I'm going to minister. And then my wife and I, we've thought, how in the world do you do that today in Grants Pass? There's not an orphanage in Grants Pass that you can go help out, right? And so six years ago, we said, well, we're going to do foster care then. Modern orphans in Grants Pass, probably foster care. They need tons of help. They're broken in their own ways. Okay, so uh, in fact, we're talking to MOPs, mothers of preschoolers, on Tuesday about foster care and what that does to your family dynamics. And so we just counted up how many of these wonderful gifts in the last six years we've had in our home. Now, I thought it was like 57. She's like, it's 16. I'm like, oh, man, seems like more than that. Are you sure about that? Right? If you want good numbers, ask my wife. If you want a great story, ask me. That's kind of our dynamic, right? <laughs> I'm like, okay, 16. And it's been a total blessing. The last one did something that reminded me of the power of us coming together, the effect it can begin to have on widows, on orphans, on foster care. So her name, Kylie, uh, she was going to be adopted by an aunt down in Las Vegas. Adoption and foster care is a long process. It's not just instant. It takes six, eight months for those, the paperwork, for the studies, for everything to go through. So for six to eight months, Kylie, this five-year-old, is being told, here's your forever home. You have an aunt who cares for you and loves you and wants to adopt you, right? That's happening to her. So she flies down to Las Vegas with the caseworker. Caseworker goes to church here. She's an awesome lady. And she's just broken up by this whole thing. So she goes down there. Um, after 10 days, the aunt says, huh, take her back. So she's put on a plane, flown back to Medford where we pick her up. The next morning, is her sixth birthday. You're just like, oh, you couldn't script this worse. You could not. She's with this, you know, she doesn't know us from anything. So that morning, Saturday morning, she wakes up. I'm happy birthday, Kylie. This is so awesome. You're six now. What do you want for breakfast? You want pancakes? You want chocolate cake? Charity's not here. I'll make you chocolate cake. She's like, I want cereal. Okay, great. Get her some, all, all the cereal. She picks her cereal. I pour some milk on it, and then she's about ready to dig in. I say, in our family, we always thank Jesus before we eat. She looked at me, just turned six. She said, I'm a pagan. I said, you're out of my home now. <laughs> no. <laughs> I said, oh. I said, Kylie, what does that mean, you're a pagan? She says, 
it means I don't pray because pagans don't pray. Yeah, yes, that's pretty legitimate. Okay, you seem to have a little bit of understanding what it means to be a pagan. I said, okay, well, all right. I said, well, why do you think you're a pagan? Because my mom told me I was a pagan. Oh. I said, well, has your mom ever told you that you were something or called you something that later on you realized that's not actually what you are? She thought for a second. She said, yeah. I said, then maybe you're not a pagan. Let's pray. So we prayed. And we started going on with her, and we're bringing to church here on Sunday. And, and then the, the first Wednesday she went to church, I was able to drive home because Wednesdays I can go home with my family. Uh, usually my family's in and out before, on a Sunday before I can go with them. So it's myself, my wife, Kylie, and my six-year-old son, Myron. And we're leaving, and I said, Kylie, what'd you think about church? She said, I'm a pagan. I said, yeah, we've established that. Yeah, okay, we get that. She goes, pagans don't like church. I said, okay, well, let's, let's see here. Um, what did you think about tonight then? He goes, well, I like playing on the fire truck. I said, that's good. She said, I like the hamburger that I got. I said, well, that's good. She said, I met a friend in class. I said, well, that's good. She said, I like the game they play. I said, that's good. She goes, and I even like the story they told. I said, Kylie, you like church. Maybe you're not a pagan. She just kind of looked at me. The next day, my wife takes her to the library. And she picks out stories that she wants to read. She doesn't want to go to the six-year-old section. She goes to the high school teen section. And she picks out these books. One of the books was this, just this sassy-looking girl, got her hands on her hip, and she is wearing a shirt that just says, Rebel. I'm like, oh, no, you're six. Are you sure you want to read this book, right? That's the book she wants my wife to read at night. Two weeks in, because of this right here, she said, I don't want that book. Would you read to me the book they read in church, the Jesus storybook to me tonight? And that's the thing that she wanted to have read from that time on. It's what happens here. It's what happens here. It's what happens right now. Do you know how many kids we have down in the kids' wing? 75,000, all right? <laughs> or somewhere in there. That might be wrong, but hey, I'm not the numbers guy, all right? The seeds of what's happening here. Every Sunday, you have no idea. You have no idea. The help that we got with Kylie because of what happens here. Oh, the brilliance widows, and orphans. You want to be blessed? Ha ha. Verse 27. Well, Matt, I'm a showman. What about me? How do I stop being someone that makes these plans and not doing them? How do I become a doer of the word? How do I become a psalmsman? Blessed in my doing. Verse 25 is the key. Look what it says. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The law of liberty. Is that an oxymoron? 
Do you see law and liberty often combined like that? You don't, right? When you think of law, you think of rules and duties and grit your teeth. And then liberty, it's, hey, freedom and do whatever you want. It's this oxymoron. Because the Christian life is an oxymoron. If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life for my sake. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The law of liberty. You know what the law of liberty is? It's God knows how you and I actually work. He knows what works with humans. And it's not rules and gritted teeth, and I'm going to do better. That never works. Instead, what God says is this, I'm going to set my love upon you. I'm going to set you free in such a way you cannot imagine it. And when I do, it's going to ignite something in your soul, ignite something in your heart that transforms you into a different kind of person. And so the gospel is this, keep reminding yourself what manner of person you've actually become. What God says you are today, that's the good news. You are my beloved. You are a royal priesthood. You're royalty, do you know that? In the ancient times, do you know how you became royalty? You were born into it, adopted into it, or you married into it. Guess what the Bible says about believers? You're born into God's family, you're adopted into God's family, and you're married into God's family. You are a thrice holy king or queen of King Jesus. That's what the Bible declares about you. You got to remember what manner of man you are. Because when you do, it transforms you. That God joys over you. He loves you. He's ravished with you. And you know what? When that love ignites in your heart, the most illogical things happen to you. Because love is illogical. Totally illogical. I'll give you my best example. I was just out of my barn a week ago. And this is the first year in 12 years that I have not pulled out my 1966 Volkswagen bus. I didn't drive it this year because the starter's broken and I just didn't get to it. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at it and it's taking up space and it's broken and I thought, I should sell that thing. And then I, that, second, I, that thought took about one billionth of a second and I said, no way. I love my van. And it's illogical because I've had a ton of Volkswagens and all of them have disappointed me. My first Volkswagen was a 1962 bug I bought out of a dude's field. And I had my buddies all packed in there. There was five of us in this little bug and we're driving along the road. When I look out, and I just see this tire come flying up over the hood. I'm like, a tire? Whose tire is that? <laughs> it was my tire. Now it's that dude's front porch's tire, right? And as I'm doing 360s down the road. My second Volkswagen was a 71 Volkswagen Westphalia bus that I drove to college. And um, I took some buddies skiing, and there's this long road from Corvallis to McMinnville where you don't touch your brakes once. Well, I get into McMinnville, I go to hit my brakes, they don't exist anymore. I don't have a horn, so I'm just leaning out the, the side of my window just yelling, no brakes, right? Almost die. That same time, we're coming home, we get the brakes fixed. I'm coming home with one of my buddies, and we get stuck in this ice storm, and the alternator goes out, the battery goes dead, and the Volkswagen just stops on the side of the road. It's freezing cold, 
it's midnight, and there's one sleeping bag and two dudes. Yeah, awkward, okay? It's a very awkward night. I can go on and on and on. All right, the Volkswagen I have now, I'm going down Cloverlong, which is a steep road. The brakes go out on it. It's illogical, but you know what? Every time I see one, I just think, oh, I love those things. They disappoint, they break, but I love them. And I work on them, and I give myself to them. Listen, that's what God has for you and me. He loves you, but I failed him. Yep, and he still loves you. But my brakes didn't work for him. Yep, and he still loves you. But I wrecked into something. Yep, and he still loves you. It's the ravishing love God has for you. That's the law of liberty. God, are you kidding? Are you kidding? That's how revival happens. So Jonathan Edwards, if you don't know who he is, he's probably arguably the greatest theologian America has ever produced. And he was part of the great awakening that happened in America many, many years ago. And so he wrote about that great awakening and he wrote this book and the book is called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. Like today we just call it revival. He's like a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. And he gives these steps that he saw happen in real, real revival. I love these steps. Number one, he says, here's what happens. Conviction of sin. I'm broken. My brakes are out. Ah, I'm broken. Number two, a commitment to live better. God, I'm gonna do better. I'm not gonna be a hearer only. I'm gonna be a doer of the word. I'm gonna commit. I'm gonna discipline myself. I'm going to do it. Number three, repeated failure. Ah. Number four, Feelings of utter helplessness and guilt. I'm not a doer. I'm a failure. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Maybe I'm a pagan. I don't even know if I'm saved, right? Then fifthly, an experience of grace that overwhelms the individual with confidence and love and transforms their life. Man, I've been all five of those. And it's the fifth one. Number five is the only one that I've ever found that works. When you finally are touched with how good, the law of liberty, are you kidding? You can't be that good. Oh, I am that good. And it transforms you. That's revival. That's what James is saying. When that finally triggers in your heart, there's no stopping you. None whatsoever. So C.S. Lewis, that brilliant apologist from 100 years ago almost now, he said this, God doesn't want something from us. God wants us. When you understand that, you do more than you'd ever do before because God gets a hold of your heart. God knows if I get your heart, Matt, the rest of you will follow. And so Jesus, today as we go to the table, as we partake in you, your grace, your goodness, your mercy, your love, the gospel, that we are royalty, that one day we will stand with you 
ruling and reigning, a renewed kingdom. Oh, may that grip our hearts. As we go to the table today, may we, may we be reminded of what manner of man, what manner of woman we have become. May your spirit overwhelm us with your grace and transform us. And we ask this in your name. Amen.